June 22, 1962. A four-month-old Boeing 707 takes off from Paris Orly Airport, carrying 103 passengers and 10 crew members. Among those on board, Justin Carey, a World War II hero and founder of the Guyanese Socialist Party. Also on the flight was Paul Niger, a black consciousness movement poet and native of Guadeloupe returning home. After two uneventful stopovers, first in Lisbon, then in the Azores, this young aircraft disappeared over Guadeloupe Island in the Caribbean, never making it to its final destination of Santiago, Chile. What happened to this ill-fated flight? Was the crash caused by the notoriously complicated weather patterns in the Caribbean? Could it have been equipment issues in this new aircraft? How much did human error play a factor in the demise of Air France 117? Find out on this episode of Black Box Down. Hey everyone, welcome to Black Box Down. Uh, it's Gus and Chris. Hi Chris. Hello. We're talking about a little older incident today. Uh, Air France 117 took place back in 1962. Kind of a, a, a different era, 707. I don't know if we've covered an incident with this plane either. We'll dig a little into that. But uh, slightly different than uh, some of our other incidents that we've talked about. I'm curious if the people on the plane have anything to do with the disappearance, because you don't normally specify the passengers. Well, the reason that uh, we highlighted these people, Chris, is that this was the test pilot episode for Black Box Down. We recorded oh. this about a year and a half ago, but then we never released this episode. We recorded it just as a test, and we thought that it would be interesting to highlight some people of note on this flight. We weren't sure if that was something we wanted to do, continuing going forward in the series. So that's why, like, this was episode zero, the first one we ever did, and uh, people seemed to like it. So we made another test episode that we released for first members on the Rich Teeth website. People like that, so then that's when we started going ahead and uh, making full-blown episodes for everyone else. And you're like, we need to go back, redo this one again, add some Chris. Yeah, we had to spring a little Chris <laughs> on it. I thought it was a good incident, and uh, I'm happy that we're going to you know, kind of touch it up a bit and talk about it now as a full-blown episode on its own. So, like I said, this flight flew from Paris, France, obviously, to Lisbon, Portugal, and mm -hmm. then to the Santa Maria Island in the Azores before reaching Point Apitri in Guadeloupe. So I'm, I apologize right off the bat. There's a lot of French names in this episode. I'm going to do my best here, but uh, I'm probably going to get some wrong. So apologies if you're a French speaker. This flight had three more destinations after uh, Guadeloupe, but it never made it. The flight was uneventful before reaching Guadeloupe, and while on approach to La Risette Airport, the instruments started to malfunction and the plane actually got off course. And it ended up crashing into a forest on a hill named Dodan, which means the donkey's back. The plane exploded, killing everyone on board. The crash actually went unnoticed. It took three hours for a distress signal to be sent. Well, it went unnoticed as in like no one knew it went down or they didn't, they weren't aware that the plane didn't land or how did it actually get discovered? Yeah, you're, you're right. Nobody knew that the plane never made it. Nobody realized that the plane should have landed three hours ago and it never made it. Oh, damn. Well, Dory, we're going to get into the specifics on why that happened uh, a little later in the episode. Actually, the cause of the crash is a mystery, but we're going to go over some uh, possibilities and speculate on probably what happened. So we, we, I think we can make some pretty strong conclusions as to what happened. So we're going to break down a few different causes. We'll start here with the first potential cause, which is uh, human error. So we're going to give a little bit of background on someone first before we get to that. There was this guy named Alvin Tex Johnston, who was born in 1914. Uh, he was an American test pilot who made his first flight in 1925. If you do the math, he was 11. <laughs> so Wait, what? <laughs> to put that in perspective, the Wright brothers had just flown a fixed-wing aircraft for the first time 22 years before that. You know, So planes were, were really a brand new thing. People were really just starting to uh, figure them out. And uh, he was an instructor in the civilian pilot training program until 1941 when he was transferred to the U.S. Army Air Corps. And Johnston even helped design and later flew the rocket-propelled Bell X-1 on May 22, 1947, 
And the X-1, of course, was the first plane ever to break the sound barrier when it was piloted by Chuck Yeager in October of 1947. So pretty, very well accomplished person in the field of aviation. Yeah, this is like someone who was like there when it started. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, helping to design and fly, you know, planes that are the first ones to break the sound barrier. Like super, super accomplished. Eventually, he became the chief test pilot for Boeing. And uh, he was charged with overseeing the instruction of Air France pilots. True pioneer in aviation, expert with the Boeing 707, and uh, while the aircraft was still in its prototype phase, he performed a barrel roll in it to, in order to, quote, sell airplanes. What? Yeah, they were, they were, Boeing was doing a, a test flight to show airlines, the people who would potentially buy the plane, and uh, Tex wanted to show the plane off, so he did a barrel roll in it, and Boeing got really mad at him, but to his credit, it sold airplanes, you know? Oh my uh, god. He was like, I'm gonna do a barrel roll, just like... Yeah. <laughs> and he did it. True Maverick, you know, he did what uh, what he thought was right. Peppy would be proud. <laughs> he would. Star Fox 64 yeah, Star Fox. fans. <laughs> little, uh, little video game humor for you there. Uh, like I said, he was overseeing the instruction of the Air France pilots. And once he started working with the Air France pilots, his initial reactions were not positive. He claimed that they were lazy, they were late, uh, they did not meet his standards to become qualified to fly Boeing planes. In response, he increased the number of Boeing instructors in Paris, and uh, he just returned to the United States himself. Those Boeing instructors worked with and approved Air France's own instructors to teach Air France pilots how to fly the Boeing 707. The Air France instructors qualified their chief pilot, who on his second trip flew the doomed Air France 117 flight right into the hill known as the Dodan. That was only a second flight? It was his second trip as uh, the chief pilot. Okay. Not his second flight overall. So I'm, I'm going to read a little excerpt from Tex Johnson's book. Tex Johnson eventually wrote a, a book called Jet Age Test Pilot. Yeah, I'm going to read a little, a little excerpt from it here. The quote is, He missed an inclement weather approach at an airport in the Lesser Antilles and on the go-around for a second approach failed to climb to minimum altitude and crashed into a mountain on an adjacent island. So it seems like, you know, Tex Johnston wasn't happy with the way that training was going, but then he ended up leaving, you know, the training. It's just like something something weird to think about. You know, he he brought over some other instructors and, you know, had them take over. You know, it's likely that, you know, it was just a job and he had another job he had to move on to, but it was still strange to just kind of like say that things were bad and then move on to something else. He was just mad and like rage quit. Like, I'm out. <laughs> maybe, maybe. After this crash, the Air France pilots blamed the airports for being ill-equipped to handle jet aircraft because jet aircraft were still relatively new as well. So, you know, like we see all the time, was, nobody wanted to take responsibility. Everyone blames everyone else for when something goes wrong. But it's not like he was landing at the airport when it crashed. He was trying to land at an airport. He was trying to land at uh, Guadalupe and, oh, okay. uh, at an airport down there, and uh, he ended up crashing. Okay, I didn't, I didn't realize he was that close to the airport. Yeah, yeah, they were really close. I mean, this just seems like it's a mixture of bad work culture, you know, new equipment, and everything just kind of combines to this really bad situation. Uh, it's another instance where pilot error was the main cause of the crash, you know, like we've seen before, you know, just the pilot messes up and doesn't realize it until it's too late. So the reason you think that it, it wasn't near its airport is it ultimately it was going to go to Santiago, Chile, but it had a stop over here at Guadalupe before it was continuing on to Santiago. Okay. When you use the bathroom, you always close the door behind you, right? You don't want random passerbys looking in on you. So why would you let people look in on you when you go online? Using the internet without ExpressVPN is like going to the bathroom and not closing the door. Did you know that your internet service provider like Comcast or Verizon knows every single website that you visit? And what's worse is they can sell this information to ad companies and tech giants who will use your data to target you. ExpressVPN puts a stop to this. 
It creates a secure encrypted tunnel between your device and the internet so that your online activity can't be seen by anyone. I use ExpressVPN on all my devices. It works on everything, phones, laptops, routers. So everyone who shares your Wi-Fi can still be protected even if they don't have ExpressVPN. And the best part is using ExpressVPN is as easy as closing the bathroom door. You fire up the app, click one button, and you're protected. ExpressVPN is the world's number one rated VPN by CNET, Wired, The Verge, and countless others. So if you're like me and believe your online activity is your business, secure yourself by visiting expressvpn.com slash blackboxdown today. Uh, please use our exclusive link at expressvpn.com slash blackboxdown, and you get an extra three months free. That's expressvpn.com slash blackboxdown. If you haven't heard that Dollar Shave Club has great razors, let me be the first to welcome you to the club. Stop buying expensive razors out of habit and start thinking about joining Dollar Shave Club today. Right now, try out Dollar Shave Club's ultimate shave starter set for a one-time trial offer of only five bucks plus free shipping. Uh, after that, you can continue to get an unimaginably smooth shave as razor refills ship at regular prices right to your door as often as you want. Dollar Shave Club's ultimate shave starter set comes with a six blade razor with a trimmer edge, two refill cartridges, and one ounce tubes of prep scrub, shave butter, and post-shave dew. Uh, trust me, you're gonna love the shave butter. It's my personal favorite. It's a gentle translucent shave aid that softens whiskers, helps fight razor bumps, and leaves your skin feeling unimaginably smooth. Uh, so ditch your overpriced razor, join the club today with Dollar Shave Club's ultimate shave starter set for only five bucks. It has everything you need for an amazing shave. It's a six blade razor, shave butter, prep scrub, and post-shave dew. I'll ship right to wherever you call home nowadays. And after that first box, razor refills ship at a regular prices on the schedule you want. Try Ultimate Shave Starter Set today for just five bucks plus free shipping at dollarshaveclub.com slash blackboxdown. That's dollarshaveclub.com slash blackboxdown. Welcome to the club. So there's another potential cause that we're gonna talk about, which is weather and you know how it can potentially affect uh, instruments and you know human error. Like I said, the weather patterns in the Caribbean can be bad. You know, they, they, they can be unpredictable. The Caribbean is kind of, it's not on the equator, but it's getting kind of close down to the equator. And, you know, when we talked about Air France 447, we talked about that tropical convergence zone where, you know, right at the equator, you end up with a lot of storms and weather conditions can deteriorate quickly. So, uh, you know, that definitely played a hand in this. So within the aircraft, there's a piece of equipment called the ADF, which stands for the Automatic Direction Finder. This finder works by picking up a signal from what's called an NDB or non-directional beacon. Basically, the NDB is putting out a signal and the ADF in the cockpit always points towards the NDB that's located on the ground near the airport. So it's like a, almost like a homing beacon, right? Like yeah. the NDB is giving off a signal and the ADF just points like it's in that direction. Yeah, so as long as you go towards wherever it points, you're going to find the airport. Exactly. Follow the arrow and uh, you'll find your way to your next stop. Uh, Air France 117 was leaving the Azores and heading towards Guadeloupe Island due west. As they headed into the Caribbean, they encountered inclement weather uh, in that area. And the problem with the ADF and DB system is that in unexpected weather, it can become unreliable. The frequency that that system uses is just a simple AM transmission, you know, like you'd find in an old car, you know, it'd probably uh -huh. your grandparents listening to Hank Williams on it or something or, <laughs> you know, it's so AM radio has an advantage in that it can transmit over great distances. You know, it can have more stations within a given frequency range, and it can be easily picked up by receivers. But the downside is that AM signals are more susceptible to noise and static interference, like during a thunderstorm. Hmm. Yeah, that electricity generated by lightning produces noise spikes that are picked up by AM tuners. I'm an old man, so I remember <laughs> using AM radio as a kid. And yeah, it's true. Like AM, 
AM sucks during bad weather. Like you, it just you can't tune anything really well. And it could like actual radios interfere with the signal if someone was like broadcasting music. These operate on a different frequency, so that would not have been uh, an issue necessarily. But something like lightning uh, just mm-hmm. goes across all frequencies. You know, it'll just okay. mess it up regardless. Upon leaving their prior destination, uh, the crew was not properly informed of the thunderstorm that they were going to be heading into. The storm would affect visibility, control of the plane, and the instruments that are used within the aircraft, like the ADF. So if the clouds are low and they have like a solid layer to them, the crew would have to rely on their instruments and radar vectors to navigate because they couldn't see because of reduced visibility due to the clouds. These instruments are even more crucial at night when it's hard to see even under normal circumstances, especially because they're flying over the ocean, going to an island. There's not necessarily any lights or landmarks to guide them. So, you know, they, they really need their instruments to be reliable. Oh, and I bet there's just less light in general in the, in what, 62? Right. Yeah, it's also 1962, like you said. So, you know, things are less developed. Plus, it's the island of uh, Guadalupe. You know, it's not a major population center. It's, you know, it's relatively sparsely populated. So the pilots of Air France 117 began setting up their landing approach west of the airport. They had reported themselves 5,000 feet above the NDB, five miles west of the airport, but that would be the last transmission from the flight. So, I mean, one of the questions to wonder about here is how did they end up so far west? You know, they were setting up for their landing approach, but they were already west of the airport. They were coming from the east. So you would think that they'd start their approach on the east side of the airport. Yeah. They ended up five miles west when they started their approach. So they were way off and they probably didn't even realize it. And that's probably just the thunder, I mean, the lightning and messing up their beacon. And Right. It could be that their beacon wasn't pointing them correctly. They thought the beacon was telling them they were in one position when they were in another. So you know, they just end up west of the airport. Again, no lights. They don't know. And they end up crashing to a mountain. They might not have even seen it because it was so dark. So, I mean... Yeah, they, this was just really bad luck for them. They didn't know the storm was there, so they weren't prepared and uh, just end up, you know, tragically crashing into a mountain because of poor technology or re- relatively primitive technology compared to what we have now. I'm sure the inevitable question you ask yourself is, if the NDB and ADF are normally unreliable, why are they using them? Well, <laughs> let me let me expand on that. Uh-huh. There's, a, there's another thing going on here. Normally, the NDB and ADF are sufficient to help pilots along the way, but... There were more than one systems in planes uh, from that time. So they also had another system called the VOR. So the VOR is the very high frequency omnidirectional range. That's a mouthful. So it's basically a short range radio navigation system. The analogy would be like ADF is like AM radio, while the VOR is like FM radio. The signal is very clear from the VOR, but relatively short range. Okay. Does it do the same thing where it kind of points you in the right direction towards the landing or is it for more for communication or what? It's essentially the same thing. The VOR is used as a beacon as well to fly in a straight line to or from a destination. Very similar to the NDB and ADF. But again, like I said, the range is a lot shorter. So, you know, really you only use in, in at this time, in this case, you would use the VOR when you're very close to the airport. Gotcha. So airports are meant to have an operational VOR system so that when planes approach, they dial in a straight line and they easily glide in. I'm sure you're going to guess, in this case for Air France 117, (laughs) this was not the case. It turns out that the VOR system at the La Raisette Airport in Guadeloupe was not operational. In cases like this, the pilots would rely on the ADF system to assist them in landing, but as we know, that system was unreliable on this incident. Both systems were down, essentially. Right, like they had their long-range, kind of unreliable system, uh, which ended up being super unreliable, and their short-range, reliable system was offline. I mean, there, there was really potentially no way for them to know that the VOR 
was not operational. So were they looking, they were waiting for it to turn on, like waiting for a signal and it just never came? Right. It could be that maybe that's why they ended up five miles west of the airport. They thought that, you know, oh, that we would be in range of the VOR by now if we were that close to the airport, not realizing that they had flown over it. Yeah. Like we keep saying this 1962, uh, there's no internet. It's a lot harder to get for communication to happen. So when they took off, they might not have even known at the takeoff. People outside of this airport might not have known that the VOR was not operational. I guess I should point out the VOR is actually still used today. It's it's that reliable. This is still a piece of equipment that planes use and that airports have in order to help planes find out where they're going. Is it longer range now? So I don't know if it's any longer range. It is still a relatively short range piece of equipment. Uh, I don't know how it compares. Maybe it is longer range than it was back then, but it's still considered relatively short range. Okay. So I don't know if you remember, Chris, we did talk about the VOR briefly in a previous episode. Uh, In the Korea Airlines flight 007 that was Uh shot down by the Soviet Union, when they were using their autopilot, we mentioned how the autopilot has a few different modes. And one of the modes is essentially like a VOR mode. And in that incident, the Anchorage uh, VOR beacon wasn't working. It was out because of maintenance. So that's why they were in a different autopilot mode when they left Anchorage and didn't realize they didn't switch it back once they got out of range. Yeah, I didn't remember that. (laughs) Yeah, if if, uh, listeners want to go back and re-listen to that episode, I think that was like episode three or four, uh, you could hear us talk a little more about the VOR there. So because the VOR was not operational, the pilots never got below the clouds and didn't make visual contact with the airport. They were expecting it to kick in when they got close to the airport, but it never kicked in. I, I don't know what the analogy today would be. It's like, it would be like if your GPS didn't tell you you passed your exit <laughs> and you were still driving down the road, the road. You're like, no, the GPS would have told me if my exit was coming. And that's when you drive into the lake. <laughs> that's when you end up in the lake. And, uh, and another thing here is that the clouds could have been pretty low, you know, especially if they noted that they were at 5,000 feet before their crash. So, you know, it could be that the cloud layer was below them and they still couldn't see anything. And that's what one, another one of the reasons they end up crashing into uh, the mountain. Mm. And so normally there's a minimum altitude a pilot will fly at until they're 100% sure they're lined up for approach. That's like they're, okay, you know, are we going to land? If we go below this altitude, we're definitely going to land. So we don't know necessarily what the altitude was here. But, you know, it's speculated that they went under that altitude without knowing 100% for sure that they were lined up with the airport. You know, they, they probably just started their descent thinking, yeah, the airport will be out there and uh, we're going to end up lined up with it and, and land. But, of course, we know they didn't realize that they were too far west at the time. Okay. Again, like with some of the other episodes we've talked about, it's like there's no clear, conclusive one cause that goes on here. There's a lot of little things that are broken, bad decisions are made. And they just all converge into this one thing. I guess if you had to point at one thing, I would say, you know, the ADF NDB being out was probably the biggest contributing factor. But, mm-hmm. you know, there's also this poor training, um, some other things going on. Bad weather. Yeah. Bad so weather. Did it just, you said it flew into donkey's back, right? Yeah. So did it just like, it was too low and it just hit the mountain on, yeah. on that? Didn't even realize the mountain was there or was like looking for the air? Like what? Ex- exactly. So it's, it's, it's nighttime. It's dark. Again, you know, there's no lights and there's a cloud layer. They're just flying, starting to descend, thinking they're coming close to the airport, but they pass the airport and they're flying into a mountain instead. Oh, okay. So it's just, it probably happened like really fast. They probably didn't even realize they were going into a mountain. So yeah, the mountain that they crashed into is actually just a little west of the airport. You know, if you follow us on social media at Black Box Down Pod, I'll post a map overlay that so you can see how like they just basically went over the airport and hit a mountain that was just west of the airport. 
when it comes to an air disaster or an incident like this, you know, I think people like to ask, you know, what was it that brought this plane down? You know, it's 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 nice to say like one thing definitively, like this is definitely what caused this this incident, you know. And in this case, you have to ask, you know, was it human error from poorly trained pilots? Uh, could it have been the onboard navigation system that was compromised due to weather? Uh, was it the fault of the non-operational ground equipment that, you know, otherwise would be reliable? And there's no clear answer. It's really, like I said, just a combination of all of these factors. You know, the pilots did not receive thorough information on what to expect from that airport. They didn't receive information about the hazardous weather in the area. It appears they never got below cloud cover, so they couldn't even get a visual on the airport. Uh-huh. So wait, they were still above clouds when they hit the mountain? Yeah, they were still above the clouds. Damn. So yeah, I could see how they didn't expect a mountain if they were above the clouds. Right. Yeah, they think that they're fine, but it was low-lying clouds. Uh, they could also have been tired, you know. This incident happened at nearly 3 a.m. around, you know, this dangerous topography. And, uh, you know, ultimately the plane uh, was brought down in a forest, uh, you know, on that hill we talked about on Donkey's Back, and there were no survivors. And like I mentioned at the very beginning of this episode, the first word of this crash didn't come in until 6.19 a.m., three hours after the plane disappeared. The message was from the Coast Guard, and the message just said, Distress, Air France 117, B707 overdue. Nobody knew that oh, that whole time, you know. Then after officials investigated the site, they concluded that it just looks like Air France 117 exploded on impact with the mountain. Damn. And I mean, I think the big question that people would ask here is, how does a plane disappear for three hours and no one notices? You know, international airports have towers that are open 24-7. If this was an international flight, you know, why wasn't there any radio contact made with Air France 117? Or at least asking, <laughs> like, where are you? Right. Like we talked about Air France 447. You know, the air traffic control who was supposed to receive them didn't receive them and started trying to find out what happened to them. Uh, Same thing with Malaysia 370. Planes are handed off from one air traffic controller to another. Or in this case, you know, obviously they were flying over the ocean, so they probably were out of contact for a little while. But you would think that the air traffic controller who's going to be receiving them would expect to receive them around a certain time, you know, when they're supposed to be there. And like we mentioned, there could also have been pilot fatigue. I'm sure you've been on road trips, right? You know, oh, yeah. you've driven a car for like 10 hours. You know, how do you feel at the end yeah. of that road trip? Well, I've, I've also done road trips where I'm like, I need to pull over and take a nap because I don't feel safe driving. But you can't do that on a plane. You can't just pull over. <laughs> right. It's funny you say that. That's a good analogy because, you know, nowadays we have, you know, maximum hours that a crew can work. They'll have, you know, uh-huh. backup pilots to fly and they're forced to go and take naps and breaks so that to avoid that kind of thing. But of course, this was 1962. Uh, the airline industry or the aviation industry was very different back then. So they didn't have all of that forethought yet. And, and was there a co-pilot? Yeah, so there were actually three people in the cockpit. There was um, you know, the pilot, the co-pilot, and the flight engineer. You know, we've talked before how some yeah. of these older planes needed uh, a third person, a flight engineer, to help monitor certain instruments. But that's largely done away with now due to computers. So I, I think, you know, one of the questions you could ask is, why didn't these pilots fly to another airport, you know? If the conditions here were bad, they maybe they should have diverted to another airport. But who knows? You know, again, that plays into maybe they didn't understand the severity of the situation they were in. They didn't realize that they'd passed the airport. Maybe if they knew all those things, if they knew the VOR was not operational, you know, maybe if they had more information presented to them, they could have made a different decision and diverted to another airport. Yeah. Okay, so this next part's a little confusing, but but hang with me, okay? So this Air France 117 crashed in 1962. Uh, It turns out six years later in 1968, Air France Flight 212 also crashed uh, at the same airport. Uh, It was uh, flying along the same route and it ended up uh, crashing, you know, like I said, six years later. It it crashed into a mountain further north on the same island uh, when on approach to the same airport. And then less than two years later, Air France suffered another crash 
on the same leg of Air France Flight 212 <laughs> when that aircraft crashed shortly after takeoff from uh, Caracas. So it's like this was, you know, obviously that was over at the Caracas airport, so it wasn't at this airport. But still, it's like this route seems to be plagued by problems for Air France. I mean, who knows if it's the plane, if it's the pilots, the training, that's just a really bad leg to be flying on. They just have too many mountains, <laughs> it sounds There's like. too many mountains, yeah. I too mean, many mountains around this airport. It's difficult, you know, they still have to have an airport, but, you know, when you're dealing with mountains, and you're also, on top of that, dealing with bad weather that can change at any time, plus it's not very populated, so there's less lights. It's like, yeah. it's just, it becomes more and more complicated. And it was just, it was older systems back then. So, so like I said, this was a relatively new plane, though, the Boeing 707. It could be that pilots were not necessarily used to flying jets yet. They were making that transition from propeller planes to jets so it could be you know oh. when you're flying in a jet you're going faster so there's less time to react to a problem hmm. in fact that air france 212 i was talking about it was only the second flight for that plane it had only flown for 33 hours oh my god it was a brand new plane so it could be you know there was this lack of training and just unfamiliarity with this new technology yeah i mean because you said this this air france 117 was only four months old so yeah that was a New plane, too. I think that's my personal speculation uh, in that pilots weren't used to going so fast in planes yet. You know, they were making that transition from slower propeller planes to the jet age, you know, which we're all yeah. used to now. That's how we all travel. The big question is, how does this affect us today? What was learned from all of these incidents mm -hmm. and how are things safer? Because, you know, you don't hear about that anymore. Can you imagine how bad that would be if you heard like, oh, yeah, planes crash all the time on that leg or yeah, you know, like, don't fly into that airport. There's a yeah. planes crash all the time and then that mountain right there. Yeah, that wouldn't fly. People wouldn't do that. You know, that wouldn't happen anymore. So I know this might be a bit of a frustrating episode for people to listen to because we don't have a lot of details. And that's kind of the reason that I wanted to talk about this. Black boxes didn't really exist at the time. This flight didn't have a black box on it. They weren't mandatory mm -hmm. and they were relatively uncommon. You know, this particular crash did not directly result in black box usage, but it was a contributing case to the implementation, especially considering the subsequent Air France flights all going down in the same area. Yeah. And no one knew exactly why it happened. Right. We, we'd just been talking for, what, 30 minutes about this. It took them months and years to put all this together when they could have just had, you know, a black box, which could help tell them exactly what happened into this. Yeah. So the United States first passed cockpit voice recorder rules in 1964, requiring all turbine and piston aircraft with four or more engines to have cockpit voice recorders by March 1st, 1967. And as of 2008, it's an FAA requirement that the CVR recording duration is a minimum of two hours. Following the NTSB recommendation, it should be increased from its previously mandated 30-minute duration. And that was because of the UPS one, right? Or FedEx, yeah. FedEx, sorry. Yeah, we had talked about <laughs> that before. If you listen to uh, our previous episode about the FedEx flight, we talk about uh, that cockpit voice recorder duration. Yeah. So as of 2014, the United States requires flight data recorders and cockpit voice recorders on aircraft that have 20 or more passenger seats or those that have six or more passenger seats are turbine-powered and require two pilots. So... Black boxes are required everywhere now. So if something does happen, we can see exactly what happened and learn from it. And in addition, there are some other rules that were implemented as a result of all of this. Uh, now it's mandated that planes should have enough fuel to go to another airport if they can't make their destination, which sounds like a weird thing that you have to mandate, right? <laughs> yeah, like you would think, hey, we should be able to like land somewhere else as an emergency in case there's like a storm or an explosion or this runway is not functional. Right. It seems like a no-brainer. Obviously, it's a little different. It's not a perfect analogy, but like when you're traveling in your car, you don't put just enough gas to get exactly where you're going <laughs> or to the next gas station. You put a little extra just to be safe. I mean, obviously in a car you fill it up, but 
you don't try to cut it that close. Yeah, when you fill you fill it up all the way because there's no point in <laughs> risking running out. Right, uh, and of course, you know, pilot training and safety has become paramount for airlines. We've talked about crew resource management and the way that pilots are trained, and you know, trying to really emphasize that safety needs to be first and foremost uh, for airlines. And in addition to all of this, the ADF and NDB are not used in the same way, and they're not used nearly as frequency anymore. For the most part now, NDBs are most commonly used as markers or locators for uh, ILS mm. approach. So uh, in the United States, the NDB is often combined with the outer marker beacon on an ILS approach. And marker beacons on ILS approaches, they're being phased out worldwide in favor of new technologies with you know better range and just trying to modernize everything. So you still will find them for some approaches, but really, you know, technology's taken over and they're not really used for the most part anymore. Uh, they're being decommissioned. Okay. Yeah, and the ADF system is really seen as antiquated by a lot of pilots today. So you don't have to worry. Those old systems aren't used anymore. On top, and I mean, I, that, this doesn't even cover the fact that we have GPS now. You know, we have satellites that can tell you where <laughs> you are precisely at any moment. So we really don't have to rely as critically on these old systems as technology has advanced over the last 60 years, which I'm sure uh, everyone would expect. Yeah. So in a nutshell, that's uh, Air France 117. Just really, in my opinion, a victim of the transition from old technology to the jet age and just really something that wouldn't happen anymore. And we've learned so much since then. Yeah. Can you post a picture of donkeys back the mountain? <laughs> yeah. If you follow us on social media at Black Box <laughs> Down Pod, I'll see if I can find a photo of Dodan and I'll, I'll go ahead and post it there. Like I said, I'll post a map that way you can see exactly where the crash happened in relation to the airport and you'll see how, yeah, they just missed it. They were, they were just yeah. past it and didn't realize it. Like I want to see how mountainous this island is. Yeah. Well, if you think about it, I mean, islands by nature are mountainous, right? They're mountains yeah. that have peaked out of the ocean. Yeah. You're standing on the top of a mountain that you know, comes from the ocean bed. But yeah, I'll go ahead and, and post that so you see exactly what's going on. Uh, and as always, if you enjoy the podcast, you know, go ahead and leave us a review and uh, tell a friend. They'll, yes. Maybe they'll learn something today. Uh, who should they tell? They should tell a friend, if you know anyone who owns a cat, because we told yeah. people to tell people who <laughs> own dogs last time. If you know anyone who owns a cat, tell them that they should listen to Black Box Down. Because, you know, this is a good podcast to put on while you're running around the house because your cat likes to listen to it too. Yeah. Cat would love this podcast. Or while you're uh, while you're cleaning your litter box, just put a podcast yeah. on. All right, thanks for listening everybody. We'll see you guys next time. Bye.